God is good. Hey, I want to get right into the Word of God with you today. And as you can see on the screen behind me, we're beginning a new series. Let me just go ahead and preface this by letting you know today, this message is probably going to hit a lot different than the one last Sunday when we kicked off the new year. Uh, some messages uh, tend to get a few more amens than others, and this message series might feel a little bit different than than what we did last weekend. But let me tell you, on Wednesday night of this past week, we began the week with, uh, the year rather, with a week of prayer. And on Wednesday night, this room was filled with men and women, young and old, teenagers, students, all here. And we were praying for one another and praying for this church, the prayer that's found in Colossians 1.9. So I want to show you that prayer that we've been praying. Here's what it says in Colossians 1.9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That, that's our prayer for the church. That's our prayer for you this morning, that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will through the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit Gives. Now, one of the evidences that you've received from God is what the Spirit gives is that you can discern the will of God, not just to have knowledge, but to have wisdom in your life. See, wisdom is knowing how to apply eternal truth in present times. That's what wisdom is. How many of you know we need wisdom? We need to not just know the word, be familiar with the word. We need to know how to apply eternal truth in present time. So, so I want to take a few weeks here to speak about a topic where our biblical knowledge has to be lived out in the wisdom of the days that we're in. Now next week, you might not know this, but next week is recognized as uh, National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And it's become a rally point for the pro-life movement in America. We will deal with the issue of abortion next weekend. But today, I actually want to begin by addressing a couple issues that, that maybe you don't think of right away when we talk about the sanctity of life. But these are also human dilemmas that are rooted in our conviction. And the conviction is the same, and it's simply this, that life is sacred. That's the conviction, church. Life is sacred. Life is a gift from God. He decides when it begins. He decides when it ends. David the psalmist was right when he said in Psalm 31, he said, my times are in your hands. And so human life is especially sacred because of all the life that God created. We're the only ones that bear his image. Let, let me just take you back to the foundation here quickly. In, in Genesis chapter 1, Verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Thank God for the animal kingdom, but he said, let us make humanity, let us make mankind in our likeness. There's all kinds of views floating around out there about life and what happens 
afterlife, but the Bible's very clear, friends. The Bible is clear that we have one life to live. You get one shot at this, and God has a plan, and he has a purpose for that life. Hebrews 9, 7 says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. One shot. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive what is due for us, the things that were done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's the clear message of the scripture. You don't, you don't get to spin the wheel again. You don't get to come out in another life. You get one shot. This life is precious. It's precious. Jesus was describing that judgment seat to his disciples in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And I'm just giving you a little foundation here as we jump into this today. Jesus said then, they will go away to eternal punishment for the judgment seat. He's going to separate people like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. To those who did evil, they're going to go to eternal punishment. To those who were righteous, they'll receive their reward of eternal life. But in both cases, we're talking about eternity. We're not talking about a life that ends when your body dies and begins to decay. We're talking about a soul that is eternal. We were formed in the image of God, not just our physicalities, but our spirit, our soul formed in his image. And the way that we view this life in light of the knowledge of God determines our views on issues in our world. It determines our view on issues like suicide. Not something we talk about often in the church, but today we're going there. Suicide is an epidemic in our country. Do you know it's one of the top 10 killers in our country? Suicide. A person taking their own life. In 2019, there were 1.38 million suicide attempts in America. 47,511 of them were successful attempts. That's 130 suicides a day in America. For many of us, it's a lot more than stats. For some of you, you have stories. I have stories. I've done funerals for people that committed suicide. Back in 2015, my family and I, we traveled to Georgia to celebrate Thanksgiving, and we all had a great day on that Thursday, and then on Friday, we all got together one more time to take family pictures. We all congregated at the church down there and took several big family photos before we hugged everybody and said goodbye. I got in the car, drove with my family back up here to Pennsylvania, preached right here that Sunday morning and went home Sunday afternoon to learn the news that my niece's husband, who was just with us Thursday and Friday, put a gun to his head and took his life. So for some of us, it's more than just a conversation or a statistic. It's, it's real. It's a story. It's a pain point. And like some of you, we were left in that moment with nothing but questions, nothing but uncertainty. Can I tell you today, suicide is a tool of Satan. He wants to destroy the plan and the purpose and the potential that God has for your life. Now, last week I talked about discerning the voice of God and said one of the ways you can discern the voice of God is by looking at the emotions that his spirit pulls out of you. And can I tell you, it's the same way with the enemy. 
we can see when Satan is trafficking in our life and when he's trying to uh, discourage and confuse us. The verse we looked at last week was in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Paul tells Timothy, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And in the same way, we can discern the, the work of Satan in our lives because of the emotions that he triggers in us. Not of power and of love and of a sound mind, but of fear, of insecurity, of uncertainty, of confusion. Jesus said in John 10 and 10, he said, the enemy comes but for this one reason, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. So where Jesus gives soundness of mind, Satan brings a spirit of confusion. And if you believe that your future is entirely in your hands, it's up to you to figure it out, to make it work, then that confusion can leave you in a place of despair and hopelessness when you're trying to carry the weight of your world on your own shoulders. In fact, I want you to just look uh, quickly with me at a couple of kings in the Old Testament, in Israel's history, and how they responded to the pressures of a moment where they thought it was all up to them. In 1 Kings or 1 Samuel chapter 31, King Saul is at war and he recognizes he's in a moment where all of a sudden the, the enemy is, is encroaching on him. He's already been wounded. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 31 that, that he turns to his armor bearer and he says, kill me before they get to me. Just run me through with your sword. And the armor bearer refuses to kill the king, and so Saul turns, and he falls on his own sword, takes his own life. Then in 1 Kings chapter 16, there's a man named Zimri. Zimri assassinated the king, and he took the throne by force, but his reign only lasted seven days, because other men then got together an army, and they mounted an attack against him in the palace. But before they could reach him, Zimri lit the palace on fire while he was in it, committing suicide. See, when you take your life in your own hands it's clo and everything's closing in on you, the, the enemy wants to convince you that all your hope is gone. That's what, the, that's what the devil tells people, that all your hope is gone. There's nothing else you can do. But let me show you one more king. And this king is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. His name's Jehoshaphat. He was the king of Jerusalem, and there was a vast army surrounding his city. But 2 Chronicles 20 verse 3 says something about the way he responded. He says, of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. Verse 4 says this, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord, indeed, they came from every town. People will rally around you if you'll be unashamed to lift your voice. If you'll be unafraid to cry out and say, I, I need help. I, I need prayer. I'm not sure what to do here, but, but he called all the people together, and it said they came from every town. And if you won't isolate yourself, you too might be surprised at how many people 
would rally around you in your time of need. Then Jehoshaphat does something incredible. As they're all together and they're praying, the Bible says that he stands up in that great assembly and he begins to pray a prayer out loud. And it's a fairly lengthy prayer here, but the last line of his prayer really sums it all up well. I just want to read the last line of his prayer. It's 2 Chronicles 12, or 20 and verse 12. And Jehoshaphat prayed, Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a powerful prayer. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Unlike the previous kings, Jehoshaphat had this conviction. Life is sacred, and God is good. Life is sacred, and God is good. And I don't know about you, but that conviction reminds me this morning that if I'm not dead, God's not done. See, the the moment we start believing we're done is the moment we doubt the goodness of God. It's the moment that we begin to forget that this life is good. You only get one of them, one shot, and it's, it's sacred. But life is good because God is good. And if I'm not dead, then God's not done. And I just want to encourage somebody today that maybe... Maybe because of this weather, you're tuned in today. Maybe you wouldn't typically be scrolling through a church service, but you're sitting there watching the rain fall out of your window, and you're listening to a message today. Can I encourage you? If you're tormented with suicidal thoughts, place your life back in God's hands. Trust Him with your story, because if you're not dead, He's not done. And suicide wants to rob God's glory. That's what suicide does. It robs God of his glory in your life. I love the old song we sing in the church that says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. Life is still worth the living just because he lives. And I confess to you today that just because you're a Christian, that doesn't exempt you from suicidal thoughts. In fact, all through the Bible are men and women who had suicidal thoughts. The, the prophet Elijah, the great prophet who called down fire from heaven in 1 Kings chapter 18. In one chapter later, he's so discouraged in 1 Kings 19 that he asked God to kill him. He said, God, just just take my life. Like, just, just take my life. Aren't you glad that God loves you enough that he doesn't answer all your prayers? I mean, in fact, God still hasn't answered that prayer because the Bible says one day a chariot came down from heaven and took Elijah. He never did die. God still hasn't answered that prayer. But he prayed it. He said, God, just take my life. Just kill me now. Why? Because Elijah was tired. He was hungry. He was lonely, he was scared, because Jezebel had threatened his life. You know what God did? It's such a beautiful story. God responded to Elijah by making him take a nap. Somebody feeling that on a Sunday, they're like, yes, yes. 
Yeah, you watching online, wake up. I'm not done yet. Wake up. (laughs) And when he woke up, there was an angel of the Lord there who had made him a sandwich. He gave him something to eat. I feel God now. Yeah, I feel God in this place. A, A good nap and a meal. And then God gave him a new perspective on his presence. You know, in the previous chapter, Elijah, he knew the God of the fire that fell on the altar. He knew the God that showed up in the wind. He knew the God that shook the earth. But what he didn't know was the God that came in a still, small voice. He knew the God of wonders. He didn't know the God of whispers. And so God, all of a sudden, he takes care of him. He nurtures him. He he gives him a a good nap and a good meal. And then he gives him community. He brings Elisha into his life. I'm telling you, it's amazing what a little self-care and Christian community can do for your outlook. (laughs) It just, everything changed all of a sudden. Even in the New Testament. People dealt with suicide. You know, the Bible says Jesus was tempted at all points that are common to man. Did you know that even included temptations for suicide? When he was in the wilderness tempted by the devil, Matthew chapter 4 says in verse 5 and 6, the devil said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. You see, the, the false promise of suicide is this, if you'll do this, Things will be better. How many of you know for most people, suicide, the goal is not death. The goal is stopping emotional pain. If you just do this, it'll be better. I think about Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He hung himself, committed suicide. But what's amazing about the story of Judas is how similar it is to one of the other disciples, the apostle Peter. Both of them denied Jesus. Both of them disappointed Jesus on the same night. They both betrayed the Lord. The only difference was one of them ended his life and the other hung on for three more days. If you're listening to this message today and you've contemplated suicide, thank God you held on till Sunday. Thank God that you gave the Lord one more opportunity to tell a different story through your life. Because the only difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter hung on until Sunday when Jesus rose again from the dead. And he sought out Peter at his favorite fishing spot. And he restored him. One of those men ended tragically in suicide. The other became the leader of the church. Don't rob God of getting glory through your story. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to rob God of the glory that is intended for your story. Life is precious. Now, now I'm going to pivot here, and I want to talk about another issue that, that we have to deal with, with the wisdom of God when it comes to the sanctity of life. And this is something we don't hear talked about often in church. If I can be honest with you, I don't think I've ever personally preached about this in church. But I want you to consider for a minute, what is the Bible say about capital punishment? Does the Bible say anything 
Now, some people would assume because the Bible says thou shalt not kill that, that Christians should be against capital punishment. Interestingly, though, the statistics say that six out of ten Protestants and six out of ten Catholics support capital punishment. So why is that? And let me just say, my purpose today is not to just uh, raise up a bunch of division on political issues in the church. That's certainly not why you fought the weather to get here this morning. But what I want to do, my goal is to elevate our standard of the sanctity of life. I want us to view this precious gift that God has given us in the highest regard. And I believe, by the way, that the Bible supports capital punishment. I believe it does. The first mention that we see of it is in Genesis chapter 9. God had already exercised capital punishment himself in Genesis 6 by bringing a flood to destroy all of mankind save Noah and his family and the animals. Some people would say, oh, well, right away you're going to the Old Testament law, of course. But this is not Old Testament law. This actually predates the law. This is God and his relationship with his people. And after the flood, he has a conversation with Noah, and he gives him plans for all mankind. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says to Noah, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? Why would God say that? Look at the emphasis. For in the image of God has God made mankind. In other words, he's saying the reason that capital punishment is appropriate is because of how sacred this life is. Human life is created in the image of God. And that's why the one who sheds blood, his blood shall be shed. Now, now let's look at the law while we're in the Old Testament. Because God did give a command for his people through Moses. And in Exodus chapter 21 verse 12, the Lord said, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. Now, I'm not going to unpack all the scripture. Let me just let you know there are other reasons besides committing murder that death is an appropriate judgment. There's also exemptions that are listed there, but that's not my point today. There's some people that think we should never kill because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. So let's look at that because that's one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and verse 13 says exactly what I just said to you in the King James translation, but I want you to see it today. Exodus 20 verse 13, you shall not murder. And I want you to know that that word is a better interpretation of the original Hebrew. The word in Hebrew specifically translated as murder, which is the word in that verse, is never used in the context of animals. So hunters, you're safe. You don't have to sell your rifle. That word is never used in the context of war. Thank God for our military. Thank God for our servicemen and women. That word that is translated murder is never used in the context of capital punishment. And the same is true. the Greek about capital punishment? Well, actually, yes, he did. 
But let me say this. Even if Jesus hadn't spoken specifically about this issue, that is not reason enough to form a different opinion. A lot of people say that about issues that are maybe, uh, you know, difficult to, to process. They say, well, Jesus never said anything about that. Can I tell you, Jesus did not come to settle every debate. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he did not come to answer all the questions and to resolve every debate. In fact, you can take everything that the Bible says Jesus said that we have record of, and you can compile it and you can read all of it in about two hours. So he didn't speak on every issue. But on this issue, he did speak. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now that judgment, by the way, is a reference to what we just read in Exodus 21. The judgment is death. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law. But then he says in verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, raka, which means fool, is answerable to the court. Now notice that. He, first he said, you, if, you, if you murder someone, you're subject to judgment, but now he says you're subject to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. The court that Jesus was talking about was the Sanhedrin council. They were the ones who had the authority to exercise this judgment of death that he was talking about. So instead of rejecting the law and saying, we don't live by that law anymore, that's not appropriate, that's Old Testament. Instead of rejecting the law, Jesus actually intensifies the law. Jesus basically says, anger leads to murder and murder leads to punishment. In John chapter 19, if there was ever a moment that Jesus would take a stand against capital punishment, this is the moment. In John chapter 19, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been falsely accused before Pilate. Now he's standing trial before Pilate. And the Bible says in John 19, verse 10, Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. In other words, instead of taking this opportunity to rebuke Pilate for capital punishment, he actually says the authority that you have was given to you by God. There's many other instances in the word of God that speak of the issue. Paul the apostle spent many days in court. In Acts chapter 25, verse 9, it says, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. Look at verse 11. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything wrong, deserving death, I do not 
refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, then no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. That's an incredible statement. Paul says confidently, if I deserve to die, so be it. I don't oppose the law. I submit myself to the law. It reminds me of what he wrote in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when he said, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And that, that's a, a note we ought to key in on. The fact is, capital punishment is not for individuals to exercise. It's for governments. It's a government authority. So what's the purpose of it? I, I love what C.S. Lewis said about it. C.S. Lewis said, all punishment is for retribution. All punishment is to satisfy justice. It is not for reformation. It is not for deterrence. And that's the pushback. You know, why have capital punishment? It doesn't reform anybody. Or, or why have capital punishment if it doesn't deter other criminals from doing the crimes? Well, it's not for deterrence. It's not for reformation. The death penalty was given by God because justice had to be satisfied. And if it does nothing to improve society, it's important for one reason. Life is sacred. Life is sacred. And that's why God instituted it in his word. Life is sacred. I could care less, really, honestly what your view is politically on the issue. And I understand this, that we live in an imperfect world and our government is absolutely an imperfect. There's a lot to be said about the disparities of, 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 of races and, and, the, and who is on death row and who is not. And all that to be considered, that's not my issue today. My point is to say that God has communicated that life is sacred. I want to ask the worship team to come back, and I want to just dive back for a moment with you into this thought of how we deal with issues that are difficult, like suicide. One of the biggest issues to wrestle with is forgiveness, right? And one of the big questions, there's three questions. The first one is, can God forgive a person that commits suicide? Can God forgive them? Maybe you're here and wondering that. Maybe you're watching this and wondering. You know somebody that committed suicide. Is that a straight ticket to hell? Because the Bible says you shall not kill, you shall not murder, and they killed themselves, they murdered themselves, so apparently they can't go to heaven. Well, let me push back on that logic just a moment and ask what is a more important question. The more important question behind that question is, are we saved by grace or by works? Because if we're saved by our good works, then we better be sure that we haven't committed any other sin before we die. If, if having a sin in my life disqualifies me from my salvation, what other sins might you commit right before you die? Maybe you, maybe you get angry. Maybe you take the Lord's name in vain. 
right before you get taken out by a bus, did you lose your salvation in that moment? Are we saved by works or are we saved by grace? And I, I don't know the eternal destiny of your loved one, but I want to tell you that God is able to give grace. God is a God of grace. I would, I, I would never, I would never tell somebody that because their loved one committed suicide, there's no way they could be in heaven. Because I don't know that I'm going to die on a Sunday morning. I might die at a weak point in my life. I might die at a low moment in my faith. I might die right after I did something I thought I'd never do. And I pray to God that His grace is sufficient to overlook my weaknesses. So here's a second question that we often struggle with. Can you forgive them? Can you forgive the person that committed suicide? You know, because in the natural, when we deal with death, we're faced with sorrow. All of us. If it's an accident, then there's, there's feelings of tragedy. If it's a murder, there's feelings of horror. But when it's a suicide, the feeling is failure. Everybody that knows them and loves them feels like, what didn't I see? What should I have said? We're left crying, why? We, we don't have answers, and all of a sudden we have to punctuate the story of their life with a question mark when God intended them to be marked with an exclamation point of his purpose. Can you forgive them? The third question is, can you forgive yourself and others? Can you forgive yourself and others? Because we need answers, and we don't get answers with suicide, we turn to blame. I should have said something. I should have seen something. Or we point out other people who hurt them, who broke their heart, who disappointed them, who lied to them, who sold them the drugs, whatever. We look and we want to blame. And can I just tell you today that freedom with God comes with two words, I repent. But healing comes with another two words, I forgive. And we've got to be at that place of forgiveness. I want to invite you to stand with me all over this sanctuary today. We're going to turn to the Lord in prayer. Life is precious, church. Your life matters to God. Every life matters to God. And if you're, if you're watching this sermon either in the room or online today, if you haven't trusted God with your life, it's too valuable to waste another moment. I want to ask you to bow your head with me and close your eyes. We're going to just go before the Lord in prayer in this moment. If you're here today and you need to surrender your life to God, you need to say, I repent. I repent of my sin, Lord. Would you do it now, right now? Just tell him, God, I repent. Lord, I turn from sin. Forgive me, Lord, of my past. Forgive me of my failures. Forgive me of my shortcomings. Jesus, I'm coming home to you today.
I give you my life. Now, if you're here today and maybe your heart is broken because of someone that you love that took their own life, maybe you're dealing with anger, resentment, questions. Would you say it to the Lord? I forgive. Lord, I I forgive them for what happened. I forgive them. Lord, we don't want to waste another day. God, we don't want the angry of life to be uncertain. We want it to be filled with purpose. We want it to be crowned with glory. We want our lives to exalt you, Jesus. So we commit, Lord, all of our days for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. I want to just say amen. Let's give God praise today. Amen.